Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. They were just imbued with the madness of Nazism. And there was nothing you could say or do to convince them they had done anything wrong in light of everything that was around. How did you react to that? I was stunned. I was a young kid, really, you know, figure it out. 23, 22. The heck did I know about life? I learned a lot that day and a few days that followed. What was your reaction to first coming into the camp? What did you go through? Hatred, I suppose. I was out of it. That's the only way I can describe it. I was in another sphere. I was completely out of myself. I was filled with hatred because to me at that moment, at that day, at that time, I didn't see that there could possibly be one German who wasn't responsible. Of course, I was so wrong. But you understand what I'm saying about that time? Life can't go on like that. And yet, uh, maybe that's the Jewish perspective. this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Mark Selensak on the Canadian witnesses to the Holocaust of the Second World War. Mark is currently the Lewis and Francis Blumkin Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Before this, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. He is the author of Kingdom of Night, Witnesses to the Holocaust, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. His 2015 book, Distance from the Belsen Heap, Allied Forces in the Liberation of a Nazi Concentration Camp, won the Vine Award for Nonfiction. It was also published by the University of Toronto Press. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation, Greg. First, tell us the story behind the title of your book, Kingdom of Night. Well, the title is a reference to Elie Wiesel, uh, the Romanian-born writer, professor, and Holocaust survivor. He referred to this kingdom of night several times in his life, perhaps most famously 
during his 1986 Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. And I always thought this idea of the kingdom of night worked on multiple levels. So in one instance, he means the, the Holocaust itself, of course, deportation, ghettoization, the camps, and all that went along uh, with it, uh, including the inhumane conditions, starvation, overall brutality. But on another level, I think he's also referring to the silence of much of the world to Hitler's crimes, the general apathy and an indifference. So this idea of negation of light, how darkness fell during this tumultuous period of the 20th century encapsulated something for me. Now, the epigraph to my book is, as you say, it's a line from when Wiesel addressed allied liberators. He was himself liberated from Buchenwald concentration camp by the U.S. Third Army in April 1945. And to these men, uh, Wiesel said, and I quote, uh, you were our liberators, but we, the diseased, emaciated, barely human survivors, were your teachers. We taught you to understand the kingdom of night, end quote. And when I came across those lines after having read hundreds, if not thousands of liberator accounts, it resonated. It really struck a chord. So, for example, when British and Canadian forces entered Bergen-Belsen, they found themselves in a situation they had not anticipated and for which they had not prepared. Uh, they crossed into another world, uh, a terrifying realm. And yet it was only the survivors who fully understood the kingdom of night. Now, the official record, as you noted in the book, focuses on the British liberation of the camp, yet uh, this uh, book focuses on the Canadian witnesses at the Bergen-Belsen uh, concentration camp. You yourself uh, spent probably most of your life in Canada before you moved to the United States. How did the Canadians fit into this picture? Well, Canadian forces have been overlooked in the history of Bergen-Belsen for several reasons. I think one of the more obvious is that the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp was surrendered and handed over to the British Army. This is a fact, and my research does not dispute that point, but it's more complicated than that. Canadians encountered Bergen-Belsen for several reasons. One reason was that they were fighting in Northwest Germany during this time. So for example, the first Canadian parachute battalion on their drive to the city of Wismar to cut off the advancing Russians came across Bergen-Belsen on the day it was liberated. Many of the men entered the camp, including the commanding officer, photographers attached to the battalion, as well as some medics who stayed behind to assist at the camp. Another reason is that the British were overwhelmed. We must remember that this is mid-April 1945 and the war isn't over for another three weeks. So the number of personnel available was limited, as were supplies. So Canadians were called to assist in various ways. So, for example, a Canadian agricultural expert, John Prosky of the Royal Canadian Air Force, was sent to Bergen-Belsen and put in charge of planning the collection of resources from the local area. This is an enormous under taking. Indeed, due to the extreme conditions in the camp, help was greatly needed. And one more reason was proximity. Canadians were just stationed in the area where the camp was located. So, for example, wings from the Royal Canadian Air Force were stationed at several bases located not far from Bergen-Belsen, some 20, 25 minutes away, some an hour, hour and a half. So personnel from these wings uh, brought supplies. Uh, some documented the scenes. Others helped bury the dead. So that was yet another way uh, Canadians became involved. So how did Bergen-Belsen fit into the network of Nazi concentration camps and who were the prisoners, their origins in other words, and how many prisoners came to the camp over time? 
Mm. Well, like many of Hitler's camps, Bergen-Belsen evolved over time. Usually how a camp started was not uh, how it looked when it, uh, uh, by the end of the war. So barracks were first established way back in 1935, and they were uh, established to house laborers working in the area. In 1940, uh, those barracks were turned into a prisoner of war camp. By 1943, it became what the Nazis referred to as, as a concentration camp, how they classified it as such. Towards the end of the war, it began to receive prisoners who were too ill to work at other camps, referred to as a recovery camp. Now, between April 1943 and April 1945, this is uh, during its genesis as a concentration camp, approximately 120,000 men, women, and children passed through the gates of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And when British and Canadian forces arrived in April 1945, there were nearly 60,000 prisoners in Bergen-Belsen, and many uh, were terribly ill. Now, of that number, the majority, uh, approximately 60%, were Jews. Uh, the prisoners comprised a wide range of nationalities, although the majority appeared to have been Polish and Russian. Uh, women made up slightly more than half of the inmates. And while Bergen-Belsen did not have gas chambers, uh, the conditions at the camp were horrendous. Okay, Mark, as our witness to yesterday, put yourself into the shoes of one of the Canadians first arriving at the camp. What would you have seen, heard, and smelled? Well, Bergen-Belsen was located in a wooded area in northwest Germany. It was surrounded by dark pine woods, uh, silver birches. The general area surrounding the camp was picturesque, and many of the men made a note of that. Now, the first sign that something was amiss was this rancid smell wafting uh, from the camp. Of all the written and oral responses to the liberation of Bergen-Belsen that I have read, the terrible smell, this offensive miasma, which could be detected kilometers away from the camp, was by far the most common observation. Many of the men would later remark that even after they had left the camp, they could still smell it. It was in their hair. It was on their clothes. Now, when liberating forces entered the camp, it was pure shock. 13,000 unburied dead lay around the campgrounds. Many of the 60,000 inmates were still, you know, that were still clinging to life were, were starving to death. Typhus was rampant. Uh, the survivors cried out in languages their liberators could often not understand. Uh, many of the survivors actually have no recollection of their liberation at all, uh, as they were too ill. Um, adding to the surreal scenes uh, were that armed Hungarians and armed Germans still guarded the camp. Uh, the agreement to surrender uh, Bergen-Belsen allowed for it. So here you have evidence of these terrible crimes being committed and your wartime enemy is still present and armed. Uh, and so the liberators were horrified. They were bewildered and shaken uh, by these scenes uh, at Bergen-Belsen. Tell us how you organized this book. Well, the book is divided into two main parts, and then those parts are divided into subsections. The, the first provides the historical context uh, for the book. So I wrote a chapter on Canada and, and the Holocaust, discussing both recent scholarship in the field and the country's involvement in the liberation of the camps. There's also a chapter on how to approach firsthand accounts and the different forms that they take. So letters, diaries, memoirs, interviews, and the like. The second part of the book are 
the eyewitness uh, accounts. I subdivided those based on the role the individual played. So each account is preceded by a biographical overview of the eyewitness. So the first section involves those who arrived at the camp on the first day or two. Uh, this is then followed by a section on those who attempted to document uh, the scenes, either through photography or painting. Another section looks at those who worked in relief, such as medical personnel. The next two chapters look at those who were simply eyewitnesses to the camp and what later became the displaced persons camp. And the final section presents accounts by military chaplains and, and how they responded uh, to Bergen-Belsen. So out of all of the letters, reports, and uh, similar accounts, what document most affected you while you were conducting this research and why? There are so many, um, but if I had to select only one, I would actually say it was the first one. The first one I ever read, a letter by squadron leader Ted Applin uh, of the Royal Canadian Air Force. It was probably back in 2008 when I first uh, read it. I was working on my dissertation on how British forces responded to the liberation of Bergen-Belsen. I happened to be at the Clara Thomas Archives at York University when I came across a stack of letters written by Applin. And I can still recall the opening lines of the first letter I read. He said, and I quote, I have just seen Belsen and am ashamed. Ashamed that Gentiles all over the world have not risen in one vast crusade to erase forever this evil mark on their record. End quote. It was such a powerful opening line and a stirring letter. It was a call to action, and I had never read anything quite like it. And what is more, this single letter changed the focus of my doctoral research. I remember asking myself, what was a Canadian airman doing at Bergen-Belsen? I had no idea at the time that Canadians were involved in its liberation. And as I read more of Applin's letters, he reveals just how many of his Canadian colleagues also became involved at the camp. So his letters were crucial to my project. And Applin, you know, he spent much of the, the summer of 1945 and into the fall assisting the survivors of the camps. And among other acts, he is well known for arranging picnics in the countryside for the children of Bergen-Belsen, many of whom were orphans with the Canadian airmen stationed nearby. In fact, he wrote a, a piece titled Bella about a seven-year-old Polish girl who used to attend these picnics that is so utterly beautiful and deeply moving, and it's, it's included in, in, in the book. Well, I was struck by it as well. Um, I was uh, really quite impressed, though, with the detective work you had to do in recovering all of these primary eyewitness documents. I think many of them would never have seen the light of day unless you had uh, managed to uncover them. Can you describe for us or give us a taste of some of these sources and how you managed to find and then use them? That was by far the most intriguing and enjoyable part uh, of the process. I, as you said, I've received numerous personal accounts from so many generous people over the last uh, decade. And these riveting documents were often just left sitting around, uh, sitting around in basements, in closets, under beds, in storage. Uh, and the sources were collected from you know, friends and neighbors, children, grandchildren, even great grandchildren. One of my favorite anecdotes involves a Canadian named um, Elsie Deeks. This is a woman who worked with the St. John Ambulance and assisted 
at Bergen Belsen. Uh, I came across a brief account of hers in the late Jean Bruce's Back the Attack, Canadian Women During the Second World War. Unfortunately, Bruce provides no further details regarding this source. It was not cited. I didn't know if it was an interview, a memoir, and that set me on this wild goose chase. I, I searched Bruce's private archives. I examined uh, the St. John Ambulance archives. Wherever I looked, I always came up empty. Uh, I eventually located the obituary for Elsie Deeks, who passed away in 2005. Uh, and the obituary said she never married, had no children, uh, was predeceased by her immediate family. That was often a route I would take. I would contact the family. And in this case, it wasn't possible. Uh, but through this obituary, I was able to contact the executor of her estate, a woman who happened to be her lifelong friend. In fact, they lived near one another in Winnipeg for almost their entire lives. So when I spoke to the executor, uh, she told me she knew nothing at all about her friend's wartime experiences and said Deeks never spoke of Belson. Uh, but then she said the only time she discussed it was in the letters. And I was stunned. It, it turns out Deeks wrote letters regularly throughout the war to her family back in Winnipeg. And the executor said she never knew what to do with the letters and, and couldn't bring herself to, to discard them. So she sent me all of this correspondence, which I later arranged to be donated to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. And in these letters, Deeks speaks vividly and movingly about her work helping the survivors of Bergen-Belsen. And so my book contains some of her deeply moving accounts. Anyways, this process uh, was repeated countless times where I would reach out uh, to family members. I would track down these rare, never-before-read sources, uh, often just kind of keepsakes for the family, and it really transformed my research. Well, one of the witnesses was Alex Colville, uh, celebrated many years later, as you know, as Canada's painter laureate. Uh, he seems to have felt badly about the fact that, in his words, he was not ruined by the experience. It's a reaction that was quite different than many of those you documented. I was wondering if you could describe his experiences as well as the sketches and paintings that he did at the time, which I found quite evocative, quite stunning, uh, but which he felt just were not adequate to what he saw. Yes, there is a there's an interesting quote by Colville where he calls his paintings of Belson a failure. Uh, he confesses that he thinks he was simply the wrong guy for the job. Uh, Colville is endlessly fascinating. Uh, he gave numerous interviews, spoke quite openly uh, about his encounter at Bergen-Belsen. Uh, he discussed the difficulty of sufficiently registering his feelings due to the scale of the horror. He said something to the effect that you feel terrible when one person suffers, but you can't multiply those feelings 10,000 or 50,000 times when you confront something like Bergen-Belsen. He also stressed that he approached his work uh, like a police reporter, documenting the scenes almost uh, forensically. That being said, it is quite clear to me that Colville was not able to create any sort of distance uh, from Belson. Undoubtedly, this experience stayed with him throughout his life and career. Uh, the author Tom Smart has argued that he thinks Bergen-Belsen haunts much of Colville's post-war art. There's a film called The Splendor of Order, and Colville's wife, Rhoda, reveals that her husband suffered nightmares from the experience of working in Bergen-Belsen. 
You asked about his work. Uh, as for his paintings, uh, one work titled Bodies in a Grave, Belson, which he completed in 1946, I think is arguably his most famous uh, of the camp. It's an oil painting on canvas. Four emaciated corpses lie horizontally, one on top of the other. The bodies appear quite faint, almost almost dreamlike, as if they're about to fade into the, into the landscape. The Canadian War Museum holds this painting, as well as several sketches that he completed of it. Another Colville work of Belson is titled simply Belson Concentration Camp. And this was the image I used for the cover of my first book, Distance from the Belson Heap. It was a watercolor. It features barracks in the, in the background and in the foreground, one of the large open pits where the dead were buried en masse, although it's not immediately apparent what lies in the pit. Uh, the use of distance, the foreground and background uh, made it an obvious choice for the cover of my first book. What becomes strikingly clear is how many former inmates of the Berger-Belsen camp continued to die after liberation, as well as suffer as displaced persons. They remained locked within the confines of the camp after liberation uh, for months, some of them longer. I mean, what were the circumstances that really led to this horrific situation? And could there have been a very different and more humanitarian outcome. Would that have been possible? Indeed. Uh, large numbers of deaths uh, continued even after the camp was surrendered and put under uh, British control. Approximately 14,000 people died in the camp after its transfer. So in other words, nearly a quarter of the total number of prisoners still alive when British and Canadians first arrived ultimately met their demise. So Allied control of Bergen-Belsen did not mean an end uh, to suffering and death. Uh, in terms of the survivors uh, not being able to just simply leave the camp, due to the typhus outbreak, um, and when the British uh, saw the conditions in the camp and the state of the inmates, while they were no longer going to be under German control or German authority, uh, no one was uh, permitted to leave, at least not initially. As for different outcomes, uh, it's a very, very difficult question. Uh, senior medical officer, uh, British uh, Brigadier Glenn Hughes of the British Army, has been criticized by some scholars as he was the one who developed plans to deal with the sick and starving survivors. So, for example, there are scholars who calls uh, who call Hughes's plans deeply flawed and that the high death rate was due to his rigid and antiquated view of epidemic conditions. So while Hughes and the relief teams undoubtedly save lives, I think there are serious questions uh, that remain about some of the methods that were uh, employed. I have one further question about the relief efforts. It involves your story about Chief Nurse Lyle Creelman. Uh, and her testimony is quite striking. I know she's considered to be one of Canada's most influential nurses of the 20th century, but what I was interested in uh, was her very hard-headed assessment of the British and Canadian staff overseeing the relief efforts and what became Belson Hospital and uh, her more favorable attitude towards the use of German doctors and nurses compared to some of the people overseeing the relief efforts. Um, 
this is strikingly controversial, I'm sure, but what's your assessment of both her work and her judgment? Well, first, it's important to note that retaining German medical staff was a condition of Belsen Hospital's transfer from the British Army to UNRWA. UNRWA is the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. It was decided that UNRWA nurses would only act in a supervisory capacity. Now, Creelman was hired by UNRWA and, as you said, became chief nurse of the British zone. Uh, later, she did make the decision to continue uh, using uh, German staff to care for patients, including Jewish patients. She notes in her war diary that the uh, German nurses performed admirably. However, as you note, she, she faced criticism for this decision. Uh, the well-known uh, Polish Holocaust survivor Hadassah Bimko uh, noted the psychological harm done to Jewish survivors who were under the care of these German nurses. The matron of Belsen Hospital, Muriel Doherty, uh, was also a critic. Now, ultimately, from, from the patient's perspective, it was clearly distressing. Uh, from Creelman's perspective, her decision was entirely pragmatic. There were simply not enough qualified nurses available to take care of so many patients. They needed trained, qualified staff, and in her mind, this was the most practical way to achieve it. Uh, I think I'll leave it to your audience to decide if, if her decision is defendable. So how does this book fit within the general literature of Holocaust and genocide studies? Well, I think for a long time, the topic of the liberation of Hitler's camps was largely non-existent in Holocaust studies. Uh, as the field expanded, we came to know a lot more about the origins of the Holocaust, the camp system, methods of murder, the death marches, but much less is known, at least I would argue, about the point of liberation, and in particular, the ensuing days, weeks, and even months. And I think it's important that we examine this immediate period after the Allies reached the camps because it reveals the complexities of liberation, as well as all the challenges faced by both survivors and liberators in the post-war period. You know, British and Canadian soldiers are rightly recognized as the liberators of Bergen-Belsen. However, it's important to note that they did not actively capture the camp. On the contrary, the German army and the SS simply handed it over to them. Uh, the Germans recognized that Bergen-Belsen was a colossal humanitarian disaster, that they felt that unless the inmates were contained, they would go out and infect the local German population, maybe wreak havoc on a massive scale. And so, as I said earlier, when the Allies arrived at the camp and they saw the state of the inmates, they decided that while these people would no longer be under German authority, uh, no one was to be released. And so the prisoners, uh, the survivors, remained behind uh, the barbed wire. So I think the ideas we have about liberation are often oversimplified. I think we like to have clean and simple uh, endings. You know, the war is over, what we call the Holocaust is now finished, and everyone goes on and lives happily ever after. But that is false. That is not exactly what happened. Liberation, as I think my research demonstrates, was far more complex, far more challenging. So, Mark, my final question is, what are you working on right now? Uh, I'm working on two projects right now. The first, it's under contract. It's an edited volume titled International Approaches to Holocaust Studies. I think the last decade has seen an increase in research that explores the Holocaust 
through an international lens. So this volume uh, that I'm co-editing asks the following question. What happens when scholars shift their focus from an exclusively European perspective and adopt a more international approach? Uh, my second project focuses on denazification in the British zone of Germany. At the end of the Second World War, the British established civil internment camps, CICs, as part of this denazification process. And a number of these sites were former Nazi concentration camps. So indeed, while the history of the Nazi camp system has been the focus of much scholarly study, how these sites were used as internment camps in the post-war period has not been adequately researched. Well, Mark, I look forward to interviewing you on one of your books in the future, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time. My guest today was Mark Selensack, author of Kingdom of Night, Witnesses to the Holocaust, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshaldon. This interview was recorded on January 18th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.